Welcome to the Meltzone Podcast from November 3rd, 2018. I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about tempering PLA, the price drop and change of the uh, Fusion 360 CAD software subscription. Yeah, we're also going to talk about whether... 3D printers have fingerprints as it has been recently um, announced in a research paper. Um, and since I've been to E3D last, well, two weeks ago today, um, we're also gonna you know, touch on their new products and see what Stefan thinks about the mortar beds and the high temperature product range they just announced. And we're also going to talk about DIY filament making. I got my hands on a DIY filament making machine a couple of days ago, and I'll talk about the first experience I have. And also Tom has one DIY built machine at home where he is going to talk about some of the things uh maybe he has already done with it yeah it's uh, it's interesting stuff all right stefan what have you been up to what i have been up to so i have already said that i have been working quite a bit with my new diy filament making machine from Philostruder, but we'll get into that topic later oh yeah there's um, a lot to discuss on that <laughs> <laughs> it's but such this, an interesting topic too. It's it's a really interesting topic. And this has been hooking me quite a bit and has been consuming quite some time in the recent days and weeks. Um, I've also been working with some other interesting filaments, nano, uh, nano diamond filled PLA, Ooh. which is kind of cool. And I, well, I thought I would prepare the video for this weekend, but I think I won't be making it. So yeah, these are the current topics I am working on and I have been working on. So what about you? What about me? Yeah, but, you know, recovering from the road trip. It's always interesting. You know, you go out on the road, you, you talk to a ton of people, you're just gone for a week, but it's like, it's three weeks in total of effort. But, um, which is our first topic for this week, um, I did make a video once I came back about a espresso or cafe W. I don't know. The Italians will correct me here what this is actually called. Um, I'm going to call it an espresso W cup because it fits a, a double espresso. Um, but yeah, this is PLA. This is tempered. This is uh, the HTPLA from Protopasta. And yeah, Stefan, you've been doing some stuff with tempering PLA too in the coffee sphere of this world, right? Yes. I have, well, I have done a video almost one and a half years ago where I 3D printed one of these Bialetti coffee makers and yeah, actually such a classic. got it working on my on my stove at home, on my induction stove. That was really cool. And uh, it just showed that if you are treating PLA the proper way, so tempering it, um, it is able to withstand much higher temperatures than you're usually used to with PLA because usually PLA gets soft at around 50 uh, centigrade. Um, and this is one of the real big downsides of printing PLA. But if you're doing the annealing process, um, PLA can withstand 170, 180 degrees Celsius. Yeah. And this is pretty crazy. But um, there are some downsides with it. And uh, I have, I think we have seen that pretty nice in your video, in your time-lapse video during the annealing process that the parts just tend to warp quite a bit. Yeah. So um, talking about annealing, there are, people are mixing that up from time to time. There is annealing of semi-crystalline materials like PLA, for example, yeah. where during the annealing process, the like amorphous polymer chains like get in order, 
crystallize so you increase the crystallinity of the part and this is what is helping you with material properties and especially with temperature resistance you can also um, you can also temper or anneal other plastic parts which are actually total um, total amorphous polymers but there you are only like releasing the internal stresses that were created during the printing process also can help you with material properties but this is uh, you need to distinguish these two things but it's yeah. a pretty interesting topic yeah um, and I mean the, the same thing is happening in the PLA um, which is causing some of the warping I mean this thing you saw um, is now kind of oval this um, this saucer is also very oval because this was printed in that direction so along the layers or in the Z direction and printing it actually grew mm -hmm. because I guess um, there are uh, internal stresses just the, from the direction the filament is laid down so the, the actual filament tracks want to contract mm -hmm. and you know the material has to go somewhere so it actually grows in the Z direction um, that is also happening when you temper or heat treat uh, PLA but I mean the, the big thing is the crystallization and these parts I mean as always with, with tempered PLA or heat-treated PLA, they are incredibly, um, well, heat-resistant and also quite, quite rigid. Now, that, of course, works well for, for coffee. Um, you've, you've got your, um, your coffee maker actually on your stove. And did, did you ever measure, like, what the hottest part of that is in, when actually making coffee? Um, well, it doesn't really get too hot because the part that was getting hot in my coffee maker was just this uh, big metal washer. But this was all of the time like um, immersed in water. So it okay. probably didn't get that much hotter than 100 degrees because then the yeah, water is boiling. Water boils and, and <laughs> actually cools it back down. Um, yeah. During the design process, I also tried boiling water in like a, well, a printed pot, but which I put on my gas stove. Uh, this worked up to a certain point, but um, yeah, it, it, it didn't really work out all the way. I, I don't know how, how hot my uh, machine got, but well, since I also did some um, temperature resistance testing in the past, um, it's really the case that up to like 170, 180 degrees, the material stays totally rigid, but then just at if you are then getting over this this maximum temperature, it just gets soft in an instant. Yep. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, Protoplast, I've actually, I think, uh, experimented with selling pre-tempered filament. So um, don't 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 confuse that with like, okay, you can actually just buy the stuff and print it, and it's going to be a, a well tempered or heat treated part that's going to be super temperature mm -hmm. resistance uh, resistant. It's no, it's just the filament itself that has been heat treated for machines where you might get PLA clogging because the, the heat break isn't all that well designed or, the, you know, it, it jams somewhere due to heat and, and regular PLA softening. Um, now, where am I going with this? Anyways, uh, one, one thing I was going to ask you is uh, how did you deal with warping in your coffee maker? Because I, I feel like you've got, you've got mechanically interlocking parts. So if those warp, you kind of, well fish out of water in, in that case well this was actually one of the things why i uh, well did this video so i got a roll of form futura's volcano pla yeah. and the claim of their volcano pla is that you can heat treat it but the amount of warping is minimal it's just like in the range of 0 0.1 0 0.2 0 0.3 percent and this is really the, the case so um the parts came out 
really only barely warped. Um, all of the threads were still working. So this was something really cool. And uh, before I had been also working with other filaments and there you have shrinkage ra rates of like two, three, four percent, depending on the brand. Um, yep. So this was a way to get around with that. That's not right. a, a standard PLA. This is a modified PLA. I don't know how Foam Futura is doing that. I think Protopasta, Proto they are uh, adding some elastomers and other additives to their material, which kind of compensates the shrinking process at least a bit. But um, you kind of always need to deal with this shrinkage yep. that you have in the end or not even not actually even just shrinkage in your case it was even or in the z-axis you even have an expansion of yeah. your part we, we actually get gross now i guess one thing that that people should keep in mind is that you know the the annealing or the heat treating the crystallization process is something that you can do with pretty much any pla i've you know my first experiments with um crystallizing pla was basically just standard off the shelf pla with no advertised capacities of of crystallization at all and it still worked but it still warped a lot um so i it sounds like i should definitely try the form volcano um pla um because, I mean, uh, Protopasta are also claiming that the HDPLA does not warp or, or shrink or deform a lot. They're also saying, like, you know, around 1%. Um, it might have been that I've just, you know, used the wrong temperatures. I just dropped it in the in the oven um, at 100 to 110. I actually checked it with the yeah. floor camera. Um, and it might have been too hot. I might have also needed to kind of heat it up a bit more slowly. Um and actually drop it into a box of sand or something but yeah um i think that's it's it's a great application if you if you have the parts that are you know subject to high thermal stresses and can't print peak for example <laughs> yeah i I, th I think you can put really a lot of work into how to anneal your parts i also did that in the in the past with thinking about well putting it in the cold oven and then well heating it up slowly yeah. putting it directly in there what kind of um well platform you are putting it on actually during the last couple of months um and especially with the now removable print bed from the prusa yeah one of the best things that i have found is putting the whole print platform into the oven directly at like 100 degrees Celsius. And this, if your part is still stuck to the print platform, that helps you a lot with re reducing warpage. Yeah, because it, it still supports the part in a way. Exactly. It, um, anchors it down yeah. and kind of counteracts those forces that you get yeah. um, just from the internal stresses relieving. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, so definitely very interesting, very interesting topic. And um yeah, I'm I'm gonna run some more experiments on the on the HDPLA, but it sounds like I should really check out the the Form Futura stuff as well. Yes. All right. Um, the other thing, or the, the the other two news stories, or the actual news stories this week, um, Fusion Three Hundred and Sixty price hike, price drop. Stefan, you you are using Fusion Three Hundred and Sixty, right? Yes, I have been using Fusion Three Hundred and Sixty for the last two years, just for the bare reason that it is a really capable cat program which is yeah. free for me as a small maker let's put it this yeah. way um so i don't have to use any wares which would probably be not 
too good showing that on YouTube. Uh, and uh, efficiency is a thing which is really important for me. Uh, you you can use open source software, but that is just always um, yeah free CAD free CAD. I've, I've I think tried it. It's uh, and I mean, being being used to professional CAD software, yes. it makes it really hard for me to use other software. So I'm uh, I'm totally happy that Autodesk is providing that software at the moment free for makers and uh, for uh, hobbyists and students. Uh, I hope this is not going to change soon, but they have already been changing something with yeah. their pricing structure for the professional versions. Yeah, so I mean, the, the Fusion 360 price model used to be kind of like this. So there was this free version that, you know, as a maker you could use um, or as a small business with like limited revenue you could also use uh, for free. And it gave you a ton of features. It gave you like CNC capabilities and simulation and the full CAD and, you know, a, a nice package of just stuff you could use. Um, and again, that was free up to a certain company size, I guess. Uh, then there was a basic subscription, which was, I think, around $300 a year. Yeah. $300 10 or so. Um, and that was actually, that actually had less features than the free one. So that was a, you know, a downgrade, I guess. If you were using all the features of Fusion 360, you would need to spring for the full version, which was around $3,000 uh, a year. Um, $1,500. $1,500? Yeah. Okay. Um, how did I mix up those numbers? I must have been like a, a two-year <laughs> subscription or something. Um, yeah, so that, that was a much more expensive subscription and that gave you... Oh yeah, two-year subscription. There we go. Yeah. Um, that was a much more expensive subscription but gave you, I think, slightly more features than the free version. So what they've now done... Um, and I, I guess this is kind of a, a reaction to uh, Onshape kind of changing their, their models, their pricing models, maybe, if they even were a re relevant competitor at this point. But um, the professional package of Fusion 360 is now getting cheaper. It is 450 or 500 bucks a year. Yeah, so it, that's a price drop of two thirds. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so price drop of, of two thirds. So, mm. um, but the the entry level paid subscription is now gone. Mm. So it's kind of like what Adobe is doing, I guess, uh, with their Creative Cloud. Like either you you subscribe to the full thing or you get nothing. Um, I mean, with Adobe you can get like individual apps, um, but really, it's it's kind of all or nothing. So either you use it for free or you pay for it. Um, yeah, I mean it's. <sighs> I guess it's it's logical for for Autodesk. Um, probably not a lot of people were springing for the full license, and now they can kind of milk all those small subscribers a bit more um, while giving the the big fish a price break. Yeah, I don't know, but you get more features. <clears throat> yeah, you definitely get more features. But I think that I, I well, I'm not sure how many used like CAD or the advanced simulation tools which were only available in the well in the more expensive version so i think it gets a little bit into the direction milking the small ones a little bit more but still you gotta say that the price is still quite competitive for what oh, you're yeah. getting if you compare it to something like katia or um, solidworks, SolidWorks. yeah and I mean, the, the thing with like the purchase one software is, uh, yeah, you can you can buy like a, a full, 
let me put it this way. So a full SOLIDWORKS license that does kind of the same thing as the professional um, Fusion 360 package is around the neighborhood of like 60, 70,000 uh, euros. Yes. That has, but that, that has everything. Like that has fluid simulation and whatnot. But um, looking at paying, where are we now? 500 bucks yeah. a, a year for, for Fusion versus paying 60,000 once. You know, the, the, the break even there is, is not very, <laughs> very good. It's, it's going to be very, quite a few years in, into the future. Um, but also, even soft that you buy once uh, have like yearly new versions that you can then upgrade to. And, you know, if you, it's kind of like infectious if somebody saves um, a, a file with the new version, the old versions cannot open it anymore, mm-hmm. even though there, there might not be anything in that is incompatible. So you kind of have to upgrade or, or stick with a with an older version for so long. So, yeah, if if you're looking at professional use and and what the competition is there, I think it's still a very competitive uh, price. And to be honest, I mean, if you're if you're at the point where you kind of need all those features in Fusion 360 that you kind of don't get with the free version, or you make enough revenue that um, you know you have to pay for it, it's not that big of a deal it's not that big of a subscription no because well the you need to make you need to have a higher revenue than a hundred thousand dollars a year that you even have to pay for the software and then i think paying five hundred dollars for this tool is is totally reasonable if you're only taking of your revenue yeah if you are only taking a look how much a subscription of photoshop or the full creative uh, suite costs that's (laughs) i I don't know way more for that than than yeah well we we pay around a thousand euros a year just for photoshop premiere and uh, all of the other tools and well even though they are really really powerful um also, this cat software, I, I think the price is reasonable. It is bad for the small ones uh, or for the ones who had the the smaller subscription. But yeah, I don't know. Um, I think it's still bearable. It's business as, as usual. I mean, what, what are you going to do about it? Switch to to what exactly? And there's, <laughs> as a, as a well, there is no user. offline version of Fusion 360. That's, yeah. that's the thing. Fusion 360 is this cloud-based... Uh, software tool and you either subscribe there is no possibility to just purchase it once um deal with it or find something different but everything else which has kind of similar features is way more expensive yeah um but of course i mean it's a subscription which it has always been um so if you for autodesk is kind of you know at a position where they, where they can do whatever they want basically with their pricing model yeah and if you're trained in that software and you're kind of locked into the ecosystem and have all your data stored in there it's not really easy to get out um i mean i i see the same thing with with premiere i've thought about hey maybe you should buy a mac and go with a final cut but then it's like oh but it doesn't do this one feature that i really like and yeah <laughs> you know that there's a very strong pull factor into that especially in a professional uh, environment where i don't know how it is today but a few years ago like the, the old katia what was it uh six or 16 or whatever that the, the 90s version version 5 release 16 yeah (laughs) yeah something like that which is you know 1998 or whatever uh was still in use for professional use so it is still in use today i can uh (laughs) yeah so i can confirm that (laughs) but the thing is it is working it is used by 
lots of big manufacturers and um, companies who have changed to the latest version, for example, on Katia, they kind of had big problems. So um, the other ones still uh, staying with the old version. And you got to say um, the old R16, for example, of Katia is not like the more or less latest one or 26 or don't know what it's at the moment um there has been lots of updates at least in the background not on the gui like and that's windows xp service yeah. packs right yeah like windows xp service packs uh yeah it's 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 it is as it is um, it, it just goes to show how hard it is to actually switch out of something once you're invested in it yes definitely <laughs> um what really concerned me when you were suggesting this topic was uh, what are they doing with the free version? Because I don't know if there is another competitive software at the moment on the market, Onshape, there was Onshape, um, which has kind of professional CAD features, but is free to use for students and makers at home. Yes. So I guess that that is the closest competitor um, of course, Onshape changed the licensing so you couldn't use it for any business use, which means I can't use it because my YouTube and, and yeah. making stuff is my job. So, uh, sorry, guys, I'm not going to... And Onshape is more expensive than, than Fusion, right? In, um, the, in the paid packages. I have never been up. working with Onshape so far. So Onshape pricing. So, okay, 1500 per user per year for Onshape. So, yes, it is three times as expensive for the base package, mm. um, which doesn't have the, um, the data management um, parts of the software. So, just the CAD. Um, but, yeah, that is, you know, the closest thing that there are a lot of, like, smaller, low-price, buy-it-once-and-then-use-it kind of software solutions. Um but I mean that those might be more than enough for your your DIY hobby user. Mm. Um, but yeah, there's it's it's tough because it is by nature a professional market, a professional ecosystem that you're kind of adapting to. Uh, you know, a, a maker or lower end market that traditionally wasn't there. So yeah, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be interesting, and I really hope that um, Autodesk is continuing using. Uh, makers and students kind of like uh, free advertisement uh, as free advertisement because if you are like releasing such a software for free for the ones who more or less well would not pay it if they if it wouldn't be free um, but might convince their later employee that this version is suitable to use and they know how to use it um then it's free advertisement for for Autodesk because they might be then the ones who are buying the software, the professional yeah. packages. It's it's kind of it's kind of twofold. So I guess what what uh, Autodesk are getting from the free version is they get a lot of testing, a lot of of work hours put into the software, and they kind of figure out what works and what doesn't, just bug tracking. Yeah. Um, but for example, what SolidWorks is doing is they or, or um, I don't know, Inventor used to be the same way. I don't know if if it's still the case, but they have a a free student version. Mm um that was extremely feature limited for example when i was studying the solidworks version didn't even have export to stl enabled you have to <laughs> you had to go through the uh, e-drawings viewer that would be able to export the stl but solidworks could not do that so it would brand your designs have like this design was created with the student version um so you could not use it for professional use but you got all the training in for your students the students mm-hmm. learned your software 
and you know then then carried that over into the, the their companies they would be working in and then uh kind of be comfortable with that and i guess demand working with that definitely yeah so yeah. let's hope that it stays free i think the whole maker community is kind of depending on that and uh i'm i'm confident in in autodesk um, i mean i'm i've not been too much of a fan of their software in the past just because like um reliability and stuff but um, uh, Autodesk are actually making an effort to to be present in the Makersoft and uh, the Maker Sphere ecosystem so 3D Meetup Sweden they they were there which is a super small meetup and, and one of the Auto, Autodesk guys showed up and, and just kind of taught some stuff <laughs> um, I think at, at Bay Area they, they also I think they were there with a booth. So they're, they're, they're kind of present in, in even the, the low-end market where they're not going to be selling mm. subscriptions into. Yeah, definitely. All right. Um, let's continue to the next topic. <laughs> yeah, we're, <laughs> ma we're making good time here. Oh, uh, well, I hope, I hope guys, this is... Uh, so as always, we, we're open to feedback. So if, yeah. if you guys think um, we're kind of dragging on too long on these topics... Yeah. Um, let us know there's the common feature on youtube on uh the wordpress um or the, the website you can also comment or tweet at us uh, on twitter just feedback on on duration of these things but we really enjoy talking about this stuff <laughs> and yeah it's, it's good fun discussing i hope you, you're enjoying it as well yes so yeah. next topic <laughs> 3d printer fingerprints oh, i yeah. think this has been popping up uh, i think one and a half weeks ago when yeah a research paper was released where um, some researchers from Buffalo's, Buffalo University, Buffalo State University, I think Buffalo University, um, were investigating if a 3D printer due to its inaccuracies during printing can be uniquely tracked back or a print can be uniquely tracked back um, to the printer where it was printed on due to um, more or less the structure of the infill pattern. Yeah, well, infill pattern, um, overswings, blobbing, I guess all the artifacts that you're seeing in a 3D print that make a print non-perfect um, kind of add up to, to a fingerprint for a 3D printer. And the interesting thing is um, they are claiming an accuracy of 92%. So they used a set of, of you know known models. They printed a few keys, and then scanned those basically on a flatbed scanner. If I'm if I'm reading this right, and had an automated software kind of um, analyze that image and map it back to a printer. So that was between fourteen different three D printers, and they got ninety two percent, which kind of sounds impressive. Though, here's the question, uh, Stefan: You've you've actually been reading the paper, right? I have been browsing through the paper and <laughs> i've been reading some of the sections <laughs> and okay. actually when i have been taking a look at the paper uh sorry i note yeah i noticed one of the pictures which directly drew me off when i was trying to read it at first like one and a half years uh one and a half weeks ago um sorry continue <laughs> yeah um cool the question that i have with that is 92 out of 14 printers is that actually so that they're using 14 different 3D printers? So that is 14 unique 3D printer models. They cannot, from, from what I'm reading, is they cannot distinguish between 14 identical printers of the same model, which one it actually printed. So say there are 
you know, thousands of uh, Prusa machines or Ultimakers out there, um, or, you know, Ender 3s, you wouldn't be able to tell which Ender 3 this printed. You would just be able to say, you know, if the world was just 14 different models, <laughs> you would be able to say, okay, I have a 92% confidence that uh, this was printed on an Ender 3, but not on this particular one, right? Yes. Um Okay. Just one first thing. Um, the ninety-two percent was actually actually even after they were scratching the parts, melting some of the areas and things like these. Their first um, their first confidence was, I think, even ninety-nine percent. So a cool. really really bold claim. Um, but getting back to your question, I have actually been looking for this statement, and I didn't really well from what i have read so far any statement where they said they can distinguish between a printer model or a unique printer and i think as far as i have understood it so far if they are talking about this 92 or 99 percent accuracy they are talking about printer models so you could say yeah. this part was printed on an endo 3 but not on which of the hundred thousands of ender threes that there are currently on the planet yeah. um what, it, what you should also keep in mind with that that is for i guess one set of print settings so you know not just layer heights but even acceleration settings and well maybe not not infill settings but speed settings for example mm. um i would think that if you change a single parameter like you change your acceleration or you speed your print speed even um this wouldn't work anymore yes but I think they are talking a little bit about that they want to more or less increase their um, their database, and they are not only looking at at one specific parameter of the of the yep. structure of a print. They are looking at at several. There are uh, let me check. Uh, there I think I think even around uh, at least around ten um, different parameters like structure, like overswing and things like these, um, in order to make their, their algorithm more precise so that they might be able in the end to say, even though some of the settings have been changed, this is still an Ender 3 where it was printed on. Right. Since you um, have many things you can correlate, um, well, against. Yeah, well, I mean, what, what I'm thinking about is, um, for example, you did some testing on printer frame resonances at some point, right? Yes. Um, that could very much play into that because every frame design kind of has its own well, characteristic resonant mm. uh, well, fr frequency. What is it? Frequency range? Well, yeah, it, it resonates in a very specific way. <laughs> Let's put it like that. Which changes uh, with the amount of filament there still is on the spool. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. right. Oh, yeah. So but if, if you take a look at different printers, and um, so they have been comparing an Ultimaker, um, um, a MakerBot replicator. To X, uh, XYZ Da Vinci. And an XYZ Da Vinci. I don't know if they are totally... They, they, well, they are quite oh, well, different with their kinematics. Well, and so, well, wait a second here. So, what I'm, what I'm seeing here in the, in the list is they have three Ultimaker two goes. Yes. They have one Ultimaker two extended plus. They have two Makerbot replicators. They have two Maker ah, replicator two X. They have two Da Vinci's and four Formlabs machines. Um, so this would suggest if, if that is, I mean, this is 14. I'm, I'm, I'm taking this is their sample set, so mm -hmm. they would be able to correlate it. Or, or to distinguish between each of the MakerBot replicated 2Xs, for example, or the 
replicators or the three all to make it two goes. I, I have been searching for that statement, but um, well, the, the 15 minutes or 20 minutes I spent on that paper, <laughs> I did not find a statement where they specifically specifically said that they can distinguish between. They are always talk, just talking about um, they can distinguish between printers, but does that mean a type of printer or right. a... Um, or a uh, um, a unique printer itself, um, and of course, I mean, identifying the prints that are printed on an SLA machine. I think that would be kind of trivial if you compare them against the <laughs> FDM prints, you know. Um, but yeah, the, the the more data you have, the more printer models you drop into this. I think that the less good your uh, recognition rate is also going to be because simply because some printers might be very similar in printer output just because you know they're very very similar machines um that could play into that and yeah but i think um well since they're not only taking a look at one specific um parameter of of print quality um they still might be able to still distinguish between um like even slight changes in like different belt manufacturers or different roller manufacturers i i don't know um i think the approach is not too bad um that they did there mm, i still have to read through all of this to get to a full conclusion um but yeah i don't know um I don't know if this is worrying for us. So they're stating in the beginning that they are doing that to help investigators find, for example, manufacturers of 3D printed guns or um, counterfeit parts. But might be, yeah. Um, So the question is, if you... If they are just distinguishing between printer models and there is a 3D printed gun found which was printed on an Ultimaker, does every Ultimaker owner now gets into, well, the range of suspicion? <laughs> yeah, it it definitely has some, some implications. Um, and I'm also seeing the other side. Like if you just create a, a table or a... A software solution for identifying, you know, what a print looks like. You could also use it in, in a different way to optimize your printing performance, for example, um, and just to see, okay, um, this set of parts that is on this printer, we can map this against, okay, these print results we're getting, uh, and kind of, you know, neural uh, neural networks, uh, machine learning, all that, you, you know, kind of go go in that direction and say, okay, we we, we have this ideal combination that we can make um, from the results that we're seeing here and, and build a printer from that that is actually better. But yeah, uh, um, I think the, the the identifying part of this is maybe a bit overstated in the <laughs> in the research paper, as you know, research papers kind of need to be to draw attention and to kind of make their their funders happy. Um, but yeah, it's. It is kind of obvious if you look at it. I mean, you show me one print from from an Ender, you show me another print from an Ultimaker, I'm going to tell you which is which. Um, as simple as that. Um, having the, that in a machine model is nice, has some potential, but I'm not too worried about kind of getting tracked down if I print something and, and uh, <laughs> give it to someone that they're, they're not going to know, hey, this guy printed this on that machine. Yeah. At least not in the near future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- 
I, I well I, I think the approach is interesting and the idea behind it helping investigators like getting this fingerprint like the ridges on a bullet that was found in a victim and tracking that back to the gun um, yes. so the comparison to that is really interesting I I really don't know if uh, how the applicability is if you are having like a hundred different printer models with like a hundred thousands different people who have that printer yeah um and and at its core 3d printing is still a very messy process right it's not like uh you know um a barrel of, of a gun where it's like super precise in machine and you mm. have you know everything is is under control 3d printing very much still is hey we got some plastic let's throw it in this thing heat it up but, and, and but throw this, it down onto but this plate. is actually the point behind that because um also the barrels in the gun they are not 100 percent perfect and not every one is the same and this is what they are using if 3d printers <laughs> would all be the same and would produce the same results you would not be able to distinguish them and this is all what is in the background they are basically using the imperfections of the printer in order to the yeah. identify them um yeah true interesting <laughs> stuff we'll, we'll see what comes from it <laughs> yeah definitely um yeah. So everybody who's interested in that paper, we have linked it down in the show notes. You can take a look at that or just Google for 3D printer fingerprint and you'll find plenty of news reports about that from the last yeah. couple of days and weeks. Though you, you will also find reports for uh, actually printing fingerprint replicas uh, to fool <laughs> fingerprint scanners. <laughs> you, did, you did some research? Yeah, I, I tried Googling for that and I was like, mm, this is this is not what I wanted, um, which is also a very interesting, interesting thing. And it might also come into play with the 3D printer fingerprint uh, technology where you can actually track that 3D printed fingerprint back to a 3D printer with, a, with the 3D printer's fingerprint. Do you know <laughs> what I'm getting at? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Anyways, let's move on. Yes, let's move on. E3D, how, how are we doing on time? Uh, yeah, I think we are still in time, but yeah. So you have been on your road trip all over Germany, um, the Netherlands, Netherlands the UK. and the UK. And you have been visiting E3D for two days all in all. Did yeah, an interview, did a podcast there. there, and you have seen some pretty interesting products. Yeah, so I, I've, I've seen... Some things that I cannot talk about, <laughs> which is kind of the nature of, you know, doing a factory tour and, and kind of hanging out with a, a research-focused company. Um, but the stuff that I can talk about and the stuff that has actually been announced is, uh, for example, the mortar beds, um, which is a, an aluminum plate with a silicone heater, which doesn't sound all that impressive. But it is kind of, first of all, it is a crazy hot, a crazy powerful heated bed. Um, it has a, a ton of heating power. Um, it has what 500 watts for the standard 200 by 200 size. Um, so that is that is, you know, I asked him, hey, how how quickly does it heat up? And it's like 30 seconds to a usable print temperature. <laughs> so uh, that is crazy. But the the big thing about it is that it's um, it is vulcanized directly onto the silicone, so it it doesn't use that adhesive layer, which stands up to what 150 degrees maybe safely. I've tried that. Um, I tried doing we're cooking some sausages uh the adhesive bubbled up and now i have like a huge bubble on the bottom of my heated bed which uh <laughs> makes heat transfer kind of hard 
but um yeah so that that's the the big deal with the motor bed there are they are ac powered so you hook them up to your mains voltage so you don't need a more powerful you do not need a more powerful uh power supply but, but you do need an ssr and you should have kind of some knowledge about electricity to not electrocute yourself yeah hook up ground and kind of use a, a ground fault switch um you know good practice as soon as you're dealing with mains voltage you know be yeah. safe ask someone who, who knows their stuff um and the other high temperature announcement was a uh, high temperature heaters and you know the, the announcement that they're working on higher temperature um nozzles where the, the entire annealing process comes into play again but the heater um you know just more power more more heat resistance um stephanie you've been liking some some details about that one very much yes <laughs> so uh well i have seen the pictures of the new heaters and the thing which i would be really keen to have also on the normal standard heaters is the 90 degree bend directly of the wires coming out of the heater cartridge so I have plenty of heater cartridges on all of my printers and on all of them the wires are directly bent after the heater cartridge and I'm always get that scared that they uh, well get ripped off or just bend and break. So this is something really nice to see. Um, um, yeah. Well, on these, I mean, and this is the non-standard part, and I think also the the heat resistance. They can be used up to 500 or 600 degrees for a. <laughs> longer period of time very hot very, very hot. hot i mean the the standard heater cartridges would just burn up at some point they would just uh go open circuit and not heat anymore um and yeah i mean both these products are basically for printing peak and e3d are working very heavily on making peak and the, the entire p-a-e-k range of, of materials more printable um and these are products that basically they need for that it is solving a problem they have which is you know the, the best kind of product if you, you can't just develop into vacuum and say hey we've got this new fancy thing it does cool stuff but we don't really know what to do with it no they've got a very specific application for it you know the motor beds i mean they are kind of pricey for what they are um if you don't need the super high temperature resistance um you're better off or cheaper off at least buying a regular sticky bed and sticking that onto something. Hmm. Um, same with a heater. You can use a standard heater cartridge for standard materials. But as soon as you kind of go into experimenting with uh, the more high-performance materials, you, you kind of need that there is no alternative really out there. So I'm, I'm currently on the blog post that they have released, um, well, like a week ago. Uh, 65 watts in comparison to the standard... 30 or 40 watt heaters yeah. you're having on the standard printers so that's well like a factor of two you probably don't need that for working at these higher temperatures but that makes heating up the cartridges well way faster i mean if, if you're printing at something like 450 degrees um you do kind of need the extra power um, yeah but, but not not necessarily to get up to temperature, but to actually um, regulate the temperature at that level, um, because you need a bit of overhead just yeah. to keep it, um, you know, at temperature when you know a bit of air sweeps over your your block or yeah. something. Yeah, so yeah, you're probably right with that. It might but still be on on the low side actually of power. You might yeah. be able to to drop more power into that. Yeah, 
but it's always nice to have this this extra wattage uh, that you don't have to wait for like half an hour to get your heater cartridge or your heater block up to 400 <laughs> degrees celsius to print your peak yeah so that's nice and i mean heat up speed is is such a nice comfortable thing to have mm. um I've I've had that in my in my DIY Delta where the heated bed is just up to temperature within three or four minutes and it's just so nice because you you go down there you you hit start and you can wait for the first layer to go down you don't have to wait twenty minutes on something like a CR ten or thirty minutes um, for the the build plate to get up to speed where you can basically make yourself a coffee and have a sandwich in the meantime <laughs> you can actually stay with your printer and, and watch the first layer and then you can take off and and be you know confident that it's actually going to turn out well yeah and that is really nice and. So they are aiming more towards, well, businesses with all of these products. And for them, time is money. So having a printer that heat up, heats up faster is like money saved. So it, yeah. it's a good thing to go into that direction and to have a reputable manufacturer providing these part at, parts at a really reasonable price. Yeah. And I mean, you, you got to keep in mind, these are not high volume parts uh, something like a pcb heater that's that's tens of thousands that is just being churned out um these beds that e3d are making first of all they are more expensive to make simply because it's a different process but it's also not the volume of of you know not the scale of of products that you have with with something simpler but so for that, do you, yeah but still yeah. they are yeah for the small bed they are just around 100 bucks so it's decent. If you compare it to getting a, a machine, the aluminum plate and a silicone heater, um, it's it's all right. It's like twice as much, but yeah, for what you're getting, it's uh, yeah, it's expensive, but it's it's all right. Yeah. <laughs> it's and a niche product. Yeah. And you've also been talking about the whole ecosystem, um, which is connected to well, printing peak and things like these. So they um, are also have been releasing the new heater blocks or the is it just the volcano heater block in copper or the so copper heater blocks have been out for a while um, yes so that's the if you ever see a really nice shiny laser engraved e3d block uh that's the copper blocks i've i've had one for a while i've not used it because it's so mm, it's just, this <laughs> looks so good every time i show an e3d hot end that's what i show um so yeah, they've had the copper blocks and nozzles for a while both are nickel plated, which is why they're so, so shiny. Uh, raw copper just looks like like ugh, like grog after a while if you if you just leave it to oxidize it, it in free air. Um, and I believe yeah, there's also the uh, volcano heater blocks in copper. Not sure how long those have been out. The other thing they've they've shown is actually um, the super volcano. Yes. So that is. Uh, <laughs> That is very, very nice, which has been announced for a while, but it's it's kind of go, getting into the last stages of being turned into a product. And that is an exclusively copper block as far as I know. So it's it's like twice as long as a volcano. It is super mm -hmm. heavy. It's got nozzles that are crazy long. Um, and yeah, it's also got a, a super long heater cartridge. So that, that is just your, you know, you throw as much filament through this as possible. Whether or not you actually need that, I don't know. Tests will need to show that, but it's it's nice to have the option. <laughs> yeah, with the super volcano, 
it's probably only useful if you are using really, really big, well, nozzle sizes, yeah. uh, where you need the length of the well, the the sorry, the the nozzle to get everything melted. Um, I don't know in which case you would need such a big thing and where a normal volcano uh, would not be sufficient. But it, it's nice to have that. And I, <laughs> as Sanjay has always presented it in uh, uh, his blog posts and in videos, it is one of the projects he really like to work on, even though it's probably not yeah. the most... Um, <laughs> Well, the most ne nece necessary thing to to work on. Yeah, yeah, it's for sure. Um, and it's it is. I mean, I've seen the scale of the company. I've got a, a well company tour coming up pretty soon. It is growing quite massively, and they've they've turned into quite the professional company. It is scary to see them go that way, but mm. it's good to see that they still can work on stuff like that. Where it's not just oh, we need to, you know shave the last two pennies uh, off of this nozzle that we're making and you know make a bit more profit and it's not it's not about yeah. you know over business optimizing uh things it's it's still about making products that are maybe fun maybe yeah. <laughs> maybe practical in some ways but um yeah they, they, they still enjoy what they're doing so that's i think that that's a good recipe yeah definitely and i'm i'm happy that they can do that because these are the guys who also still innovate and are not just copying stuff if there wouldn't be e3d um we would miss many things like all of the v6 clones for example so yeah. it's good that they are still able to well uh, be a business in maybe a quite competitive market as well with all the yeah, for sure. uh, chinese clones and uh, ripoffs you are getting nowadays yeah um I mean, maybe someone else would have come along and, and you know taken up that void that E3D, if E3D never existed, uh, would have taken. But you know, who knows? It, it is how it is. It is how it is. All right, time, dude. Yeah, <laughs> that, we we should do this. You know, really, we, we should really do this on on a biweekly schedule. Um, because if we skip a week and it's been a month. To talk about stuff that it just there's just so much to talk about yeah um <laughs> but well just maybe without further ado let's get uh to the next topic <laughs> yeah let's just keep working through this um which i have been teasering before so yeah i it actually started a year ago when i was was at tct forum next and i have seen one of these small filament making machines there were and since that day i started gathering old pla prints in big uh, uh buckets behind me and i always well wanted to well wanted to get one of these filament making machines for myself and try to make recycled filament just the big dream taking all of your scraps taking taking all of your failed prints supports and stuff like that grinding it up and make new filament out of it so almost i think half a year ago um i ordered one i ordered a, a filler from filler yeah. um a u.s company who did a kickstarter quite some years ago for a filament making machine which is like pretty simple it's only a windshield wiper motor it's um it's a water pipe, a metal water pipe, yeah. an auger, so like a big wood drill and a nozzle in the front with a heater. 
you put pellets in there, it melts and it extrudes into filament. Um, basically. <laughs> well, it's, that, that's what, I mean, that's what an extruder is, right? At yes. any scale. Yes. So, or maybe, mm, maybe not with a wiper motor, but, you know, an auger, a, a heater mm. zone and some nozzle up front. Yeah, so this package was sitting in my in my basement for like two or three months now and I just did not have the time to work on it. And just last week I started assembling it and playing around with it a little. And well, the building process was not as pleasing as I hoped, <laughs> I gotta say. Uh, but after a while it turned out and it makes filament. Um, I started with pellets that I got from Form Futura. So really like, mm, I think that was just chopped up filament. Uh, well, that's, that's what, you know, typically that's what a, a filament or a master batch starts with. Um, yes. if, you, if you pre-blend it through a compound, it's basically an extruder and then it's getting chopped either hot or cold. Um, so yeah, many raw resins or pre-compounded um, resins are exactly that. It's filament that has been chopped, chopped up. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I made my first filament, printed a Banshee, worked fine so far. Um, just like two days ago, I well thought about how can I shred some parts and, uh, well, get more or less the base material for extruding filament. So I modified an old shredder. I tried using a mixer and things like these. Uh, sift the material, which came out of these machines to get it uh, to only get the really small par particles that really fit into the extruder screw um, dried up everything and yesterday I made the first run with like 50% chopped up material and 50% like virgin PLA pellets and it worked and it was kind of nice um, there are still problems with the whole setup and inconsistencies with diameter and it's still lots of tinkering around but like a proof of concept it was so nice to see that i have been taking my scrap parts and making new filament out of it and just printed another banshee Ugh, there and doesn't have the most consistent colors but yeah if you are chopping old material with different colors that's just what you're getting that's what you get yeah but it looks it looks perfectly fine. It, really, really nice. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess the. Let me see. Um, my my background in filament extrusion is a few years ago, so like three or four years ago. I, I built my own. I tried to build my own. I got some filament to extrude. It printed perfectly. It was really nice filament, um, and that was probably like twice the size of a filostruder. So twenty millimeter auger. Um, also stainless steel pipe on the outside, three heater zones, all that. Um, and the stuff I struggled with was first of all, the torque needed to drive that auger. Um, I tried with wiper motors, wiper motors didn't work. I, I have like those big black tin mm. or can kind, kind of types, not the, um, the geared ones or that they're also geared, but they're not in warm geared. Um, but they don't have that same, um, construction as, as the one in the filler shooter. I struggled with that. I actually did not struggle that much with filament diameter consistency because I think, you know, at the time while I had the motors working that I had before they burned up, uh, they were <laughs> turning everything really consistently. 
Um, but I did struggle with getting the entire thing started and getting it spooled in some way. Mm-hmm. So uh, I guess the first question for you as a, as a Philistrator owner is like, what is, what is the size of the, of the auger? Um, my size of 20, mil- 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 20 millimeters was based on like best practices for extruder design. Um, so three times the diameter of the pellets, which probably was way too large. How, um, what, is, what is the size there? I How think is it's like up? 12 or 16 millimeters, something in that range. Okay. So um, way smaller, way less torque requirement, obviously. Yes. So the motor that they are using, it's not a warm gear motor. Um, it's a with normal gears inside. Okay. Spare so, gears. Um, spare gears, okay. step down. And the power requirement usually is around... 12 to 20 watts so it's not a really huge motor but well it's running on 12 volts and uh, usually it draws around one amp um but i had actually problems in the beginning and depending on the temperature you're using depending on the pellets you're using depending on the accuracy in the machine so i had some bursts in the beginning so i used files and everything to get the pipe really nice and clean i did i don't use any um it doesn't use any stainless steel pipes these are really bare just like cast water pipes really nasty on the inside and it took me quite a while to get everything smooth smooth and running but now if it's running it's working quite nicely the thing um and this is the difference with a well a professional filament making machine to a well like filostruder the diameter of the material is is a result of extrusion speed um, gravity that drags the filament downwards um, temperature in the room cooling fans positioning and all of the things which are um, connected to that in comparison to a normal well, filament making machine where you have like one standard nozzle size and you kind of draw the filament to diameter. Yeah. And you have a, um, you have measuring devices in there and they are constantly measuring the diameter of the filament. If it's, if the fil- if the diameter is too big, they are just dragging a little bit more on that um, extruded yeah. piece of plastic. If it's uh, too small, they release the drag and this is how they can really um, control the diameter. Yeah, and really, in, in the big extruders, your your drive gear for your auger is just so oversized that basically it is running at a constant RPM. Even if a pellet gets stuck somewhere, it's just going to mm-hmm. chew through that. Or if you have uh, an air bubble that needs to escape, um, where it would have less resistance, it, it all just you know it 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 is a very consistent RPM on that auger, which I guess is a very consistent pressure in your melt chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the, the filistruder has has no sensing or, or, no, or feedback loop at all. There's no diameter sensing. There's no uh, RPM control on the motor. There's... It's, it's the bare minimum yeah. that you're getting. And right. I also need to point that out. Um, this is not a machine you buy yourself, build it up, and then produce filament. It, In my opinion, it has lots of tinkering involved. It, in my opinion doesn't make you less expensive filament because um, buying one kilogram of PLA pellets here in Germany costs you around like eight to ten euros. This yeah, is which which is surprising, but also not surprising if you if you actually package it into small yes. little 
bottles and, and ship them out individually. Yeah, if, if you buy the resin, maybe uh, in bulk, like yeah. half a ton, it's probably like three, four euros, three something four in euros, that range. Yeah. The NatureWorks stuff is, is, I think, yeah, somewhere around that ballpark. Yeah. Um, standard polymers, PP yeah. or ABS, like one to two bucks uh, per kilogram. Yeah. yeah. If you But, buy them in a big bag, which is, a, you know, 500 to 1,000 kilograms. Yeah. <laughs> so I've actually looked at only, those prices. Only if you're like, really, uh, really using or needing a huge amount of filament, it might be cheaper for you to make your filament yourself. But uh, most of the time, it's, it's the fun of tinkering around. And it's the fun for me trying out if I can use my old filament scraps and make new filament out of it. Yeah. This is what makes me happy, more or less. <laughs> and it, it's, getting it's that very... to work and <sighs> maybe getting that to work better than others did before and also showing that to, to other people. This I think this is the really cool part about that. Even if it doesn't make me, well, cheaper filament, if it's not the best filament in the end, but just doing this proof of concept. And maybe there's somebody out there who gets everything together in one big machine and maybe in the future there are cheaper machines available that can turn your scraps into, well, working filament or directly extrude the, the scrap parts um, into your 3D prints. Yeah, so um, that's actually something that that would be interesting. So the Phyllis shooter, um, looking at the pictures, did have a picture posted yeah so it's set up vertically so it is actually extruding like a hot end it's actually dropping down uh the filament right well in the standard con uh, configuration it's horizontal um i also mounted it on a wall that um it works nicely with the film winder and everything so it's more or less working like like a hot end and i think there are pellet extruders outside But just working with this filastruder and now just slowly getting to know all of the issues with filament extruding, talk of the auger and everything, uh, I, I think it's kind of hard to get a pellet extruder at a reasonable price working on a 3D printer and then also taking into consideration all of the additional mass you need for that. Yeah. Well, with a, with a hot end, you don't just need consistent diameter well you actually don't need consistent no, diameter need consistent um, flow rate you need consistent flow rate exactly so with a filament intermediary basically um you know you you have uh that diameter just as your base parameter and if you use it as a hot and you just need to keep that very you need to keep the flow rate very consistent so um, yeah definitely a challenge there are some printers that use a um a direct pellet extruder um what is the one that is like container sized um some some dutch companies i think attached to ultimakers somehow they built like a container size 3d print and directly <laughs> feed pellets into the thing um very crazy concept um and definitely has you know a, a high output at a low cost so um yeah that's that what what do you think about the idea of kind of not worrying about diameter tolerance at all um And kind of keeping it at a size where it's going to fit through your hot end and then compensating in your 3D printer for it. I, I, th I think sensor. that, yeah, that is a really interesting topic. So maybe to talk about another thing uh, before. So Prusa is claiming really small tolerances uh, with their new Prusa meant um, filament. Yeah. Um, I think I wasn't really that consistent with my filament, but most of the parts 
turned out pretty well. So I think our printers are able to cope with some variation in diameter, even though this means plus minus 10% in material that is being extruded. Yeah. But if you are, I think, if you are working on really small parts with high precision, um, tolerances might be important. And then having a filament sensor before your hot end, measuring the diameter constantly and adjusting your flow rate depending on the um, on the diameter might be really interesting. And Marlin is in theory capable of doing that, but there aren't really a lot of filament sensors around at the moment. Hmm. I don't know if, <laughs> if we've talked about this guy before on the podcast, but um, yeah, small small project there, which is a, a inline filament diameter sensor for less than ten bucks. I should I should definitely make some video about this. Um, but yeah, I do have one of these, so the tech is there. We can do it. We can compensate for it, and it's not. It's neither complicated nor expensive to do. Um, so that might actually be a, a, an approach to maybe in the midterm kind of drop down filament prices. Um, because right now, I mean, the as, as you mentioned, filament or the pellets themselves, the resin itself, isn't that expensive. You pay, you know, 20 bucks per kilogram of filament, let's say from a manufacturer. And, you know, most of that goes towards manufacturing. So if you could drop the cost of that manufacturing down or, you know, shipping and marketing and, you know, everyone wants their cut. If you can make it or get to a more direct, um, to more direct market and, and sell or produce directly and then use small stuff like this to use even, you know, shitty filament, <laughs> let's put it that way, because that, that, that's what it is, right? Yeah. If you have like super, a super sloppy, uh, sloppily manufactured filament, if you, if you can still use it and still get great results, that would be, that would be nice. It's going to need, it's going to need some time to get there. Um, now on the, on the topic of directly printing with filament that maybe has like plus minus 10%, if you have even good filament, if you tune your extruder to be, you know, minus 10%, so 10% under extruded technically, mm. it's still going to print fine. It's still going to look very, very good. Um, in fact, it might even look better than a um, a machine that is set to the perfect um, diameter or to the perfect flow rate, but the parts are just not going to be as strong. So you're going to see some deficiencies in uh, top solid um, layers where they might droop or have holes in them. Um, and also simply because you don't have that much material, you don't have that much fusing and contact surface in each layer, you, you don't get the full strength of the material. Yeah. Um, but it is definitely printable as long as it's not too large and clogs your, your hot end, for example. Yes. Um, it's a really interesting topic and it's, lot, it's, it's lots of fun for me just working on that and seeing how it turns out, even though I know, yeah, it's, it's not economic. It's cheaper to throw old material away and purchase new one um, but as I said maybe somebody else could turn that into a business if it's more accessible if uh, some ideas are spread if you discuss about uh, how to e even further improve uh, processes you have at the moment um, yeah and I know I don't know it as I said it, it's fun for me to work on that at the moment um, I need to work on fun stuff because otherwise, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's well, yeah, it's it's hard to vi make videos about things you don't really like. Exactly, um, exactly. And maybe there's some other tinkers around who just want to play around with that. 
maybe find it interesting to produce their own filaments, maybe do some kind of compounding themselves uh, to get custom colors and all of the things which are involved to that. And maybe for these, a Phyllis Ruder might be something interesting, but I just need to point out at the moment that it is not a perfect machine. You can buy, I think it's called a Filabot. Um, yeah. Well, you can buy more advanced filament extruding machines which are just like two, three, four thousand euros. And these ones will make you, well, material in a consistency of any other filament you can buy at home, uh, you can buy online. Um, but yeah, the costs are higher. I yeah. don't know. How it, much was the, the filler extruder for you? So I have the filler extruder and the filler winder. I think it's all in all around $500 and then shipping plus import taxes. Yeah, of course. Uh, it, it got a bit expensive at the customs. <laughs> so you, you should definitely not do that if you're looking for a return of investments. No, <laughs> it's a fun tinkering project, yeah. but it's, there is lots of tinkering involved. Just like 3D printing, right? Yeah, but um, <laughs> it fits in. I I also have to point out. I think all of the parts are um, open source for the filler winder, uh, filler extruder. I'm not 100 percent sure about that, but there are open source filament extruders online, and the parts are readily available in your hardware store um, market and online. And you could even build one from scratch, just as you did it. Yeah, well, and you have an advanced one with like three heating zones and things like these. Uh, this yeah, just has one. Yeah, very simple design. Zone. I don't think you need much more than that. Um, if you really tune it into one specific, uh, one specific um, extruding parameter set, basically, then yeah. you, you can make some some very usable filament with it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so interesting topic. I'm. Well, I still need to put quite a lot of more work into that, but uh, hopefully in the near future, I can uh, show some of my results also with um, the other guys on YouTube and yeah. um, release some videos about that. I think yeah. it will, will be interesting. Yeah. And you, you so far have been uh, extruding PLA, right? No. Well, I started with like one pound of ABS just to clean the auger and the pipe. Right and then switched over to PLA. And I'm now only working on PLA because this is the material which is which I use the most. But I gotta say, I I think about trying to like collect um, bottle caps and maybe do some low density polyethylene uh, filament with that. I don't know if yeah. that works well, we, or if that's printable. But we don't have milk jugs here in Germany, unfortunately. So that, that apparently is a, is a good source of, of HDP or LDP, LDP. LDPE, yeah. yes. Low density, yeah. Um, well, the bottles would also be, but since they are 25 cents... Um, yeah, the, the regular hot bottles, as the, the uh, Brit says. So soft drink bottles. Yeah, it, it wouldn't be... It wouldn't be a good deal to use nope. old bottles and turn them into filament <laughs> because yeah. they're recycled anyways. Exactly. They're recycled on an industrial scale, and I don't think yes. we can one-up that. <laughs> no. In, in a small setup like this. No, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if you need ABS uh, <laughs> uh, resin, I've got like a, a full 25 kilogram bag still of, <laughs> of some, uh, so, what is it, 9.4? 
Uh, what is it? Uh, some some Samsung, basically subsidiary of Samsung, um, 94s. Not sure what it is, but it, it it prints really well. If if you need it, it's it's just taking up space here. <laughs> <laughs> well, if just you have PLA, I'm I'm open for that, but. Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm not a huge fan of ABS, so... I, I can send you some failed prints if, if that's something you're into. Well, as I said, I have buckets full of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you, your shredder setup? I guess last last topic for today. The shredder setup is just like a paper shredder I bought like a week right. ago at Aldi. Uh, it's a 10, 10 paper, a 10 paper piece shredder, which I cut open a little. It's horribly dangerous now. Um <laughs> I added some 3D printed parts just to get and make it a bit more safe. But this is where I can shred a little bit bigger parts. I have a smoothie mixer where I can put smaller parts in. And I'm also thinking about using a, a wood, wood grinder, uh, the thing you use outside for shredding your right, right, right. garden stuff <laughs> to break up bigger parts. <laughs> Hexler. Yeah. And Hexler. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, as I said, I'm still totally in the beginning, and I need a wood to chipper. Wood chipper, yeah, exactly. Um, I need to see how I can work with that. The the setup I have so far worked pretty well for most of the support structures I had, mm, but yeah, we'll see. Um, it's I think the way it's way is going to be interesting. So not like the end result, but what I thought about how I approached it and what I got out in the end. I kind of want to yeah. show that in something like a video. So also to make sure that people understand that this is not a fully working process at the moment. And they say, oh, I bought myself one of these filastruders and it doesn't make filament. And how do I even turn it on and whatever? Yeah. Um, it's a tinkering project. Yeah, well, it it might not produce the the bestest, you know, most glorious filament. But the, I mean, what, what I really think is is great about it is it does produce filament. It does produce printable stuff. Yes, which definitely. you've shown. So that that's great, and it opens up that route for experimentation. Whether that's just with colors or or flakes or particles you mix in with stuff. Um, or you know, even just making new compounds, mixing uh, or copolymer. Co copolymers not copolyesis you know just experimenting with uh, material compositions um which is something that you know traditionally was not accessible to um you know the, the small user the end user the 3d printer uses the maker um and it's kind of like you know monkeys on a typewriter you're gonna have a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of failures but eventually you might find something that works better than PLA or better than PTG or is just a, a good new material that you can use. Um, and if that catches on, hey, that's a, that's a win for everyone, right? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So right. we are already like over an hour in. Very well. So we're going to skip our last two topics. We have more to talk about next time. Yes. Yeah. So as always, thank you all for listening that's weird to say but um we're also going to skip questions for this week's because uh we don't really have that many so if you have questions that you want answered from us to uh leave them as a tweet tweeted us at the melt zone um leave them as a comment on youtube leave them as a comment on the website yeah yeah the podcast yeah. should be now available on more or less everything besides besides Spotify. 
Uh, people have asked for Stitcher and for Google Play Music. Okay. So those two. So Google Play Music, I don't think is is reading the iTunes library, which you know uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. But Stitcher, I don't know how that works. We're going to look into that. Mm-hmm. We, of course, want to be available everywhere on as many places as as possible, just to be you know as comfortable as easy to listen mm-hmm. to as possible. Yeah. So yeah, thanks for your yeah. time, guys. <laughs> Um, links and stuff we talked about in the video description or in the show pop- notes show notes show yes. notes <laughs> and right. yeah see you next time see you in two weeks Stefan yes <laughs> bye right. good talking to you bye <laughs>